better than all else before, more than ever needed. A few months go by and your model is announced and now it's superseded. It's hard for us in our modern day and age to comprehend anything being as good, if not better, than it's supposed to be. Whenever new things arrive, we know that developers somewhere are already working on their replacement. More than likely, whatever is exclusive and superior today will be commonplace and mundane tomorrow. So when we're struck by the kind of foreign language of that first Bible reading, and we're struggling to comprehend its graphic imagery, we're not even aware of how much we struggle with the idea that anything could be so exclusive, so reverential, so sacred. And not just sacred, but so permanent and unchanging, an unalterable institution to be perpetually and humbly observed by an entire nation from generation to generation. But if you were a Jewish convert to Christianity, like the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, it's likely you had the opposite problem. Not only were you familiar with the sacred and the permanent, your entire understanding of God and his character had been shaped by these things, and rightly so. So the pastor who writes this letter to the Hebrews is deeply concerned to assure these Jewish Christians that God's good character has not changed, that he has done a wonderful thing in Jesus Christ, bringing the original institution of worship, one that provides, uh, bringing the original institution of worship to an end so that a vastly superior institution of worship, one that provides permanent purification from sins and allows unrestricted access to the presence of God, might become the basis of their faith. He wants them to put their trust in God's establishment of a new covenant sealed in the blood of Christ so that they would not be drawn back to the old covenant which was passing away. So turning now to this morning's passage, as Jenny mentioned, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 14, we read, But when Christ appeared, as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Please join me in a moment of prayer before we continue with our lesson for this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, 
We come before you as people who know the experience of a conscience heavy and burdened and weighed down with a sense of sin, a sense of our failure to worship you and acknowledge you as God. And it creates a sense of separation and distance for us that you have made a way to be ended. And Lord, we ask that as we spend this time in your word this morning, you would help us to see how great it is that our sin can be washed away by the blood of Christ so that we can be close to you and secure in our faith and trust and worship and serve you as the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. The reason the Hebrews needed to hear this text and why we need to hear this text is because sin is not a mighty grievance to God's holiness. Not only does it bring harmful consequences upon our own heads, it wreaks havoc in our world destroys the ones we love, and tragically it separates us from the presence of God. But the wonderful gift of this text is to be reminded that God has dealt with sin fully, completely, perfectly, so that you and I, those of us who put our trust in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, might live and experience purity in our consciences. And never, and I can't stress this enough, never fear rejection from God on the basis of our own weakness and shortcomings. If it were up to us and our ability to achieve perfection, we would be hopelessly at a loss. But in his kindness, God provided the perfection of himself. When the father offered up his son and the son in perfect obedience to the father went to the cross and through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. The purification of our consciences is a free gift to us, but it's a gift paid for at the highest cost by God. To reject this gift would be shockingly disrespectful and altogether foolish. Why do we as Christians need to be continually reminded of this? As one commentator puts it, when we lose our wonder, we are prone to wander. What we find in Hebrews 9 and 10 is the culmination of an argument to keep persevering in faith in what Christ has done. All that comes before and after sets the table for and extends the application from this climactic exposition about the work of Christ. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14, then, is a crucial paragraph. Here at the very heart of the letter, the pastor lays out comparison of five good aspects of old covenant religion versus five vastly superior and better aspects of the new covenant. Our task is not so much the discarding of the old covenant, which is 21st century Gentile Christians, that is non-Jewish Christians. That covenant, that old covenant was never really ours to begin with, but rather 
we need to observe and wonder at the lengths God has gone to to wash away our sin, to allow that to transform the way in which we come before him as those who have been purified and the way in which that enables us to leave the dead works of sin behind and so serve the living God today. The first of these better aspects shown in your outlines is that of superior place. A Hebrew Christian had known in a very literal sense where they stood with God. The Hebrew world was divided into five realms, each of which functioning to keep the unholiness of the people away from the holiness of God's presence. When the Israelites gathered together for worship around the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the camp itself was considered one of those realms. Outside the camp were the Gentiles, that is those born outside of the covenant with God's people Israel, as well as the ritually unclean. Only Israelites who were ritually clean could enter into the camp. And it was actually the role of the priests to preserve the purity of the camp by expelling those infringing upon the ritual laws. The camp, which was located around the tabernacle, could really only see the outside of its courtyard. And while lay people could enter this area with their sacrificial animals, it was really the workspace of the ritually pure priests set apart to perform the sacrifices on behalf of the people. Only priests could enter the tabernacle itself and enter the holy place. But only the high priest could go into the most holy place behind the curtain where the presence of God dwelt. That was the degree of separation from the presence of God that was standard for your average Hebrew. Earlier in this letter, the author reminds his audience that this earthly dwelling place for God's presence was only a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. God is not a local God who can be contained anywhere. As he spoke to the prophet Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? So when Jesus had accomplished his work at the cross and risen from the dead, he ascended bodily and entered into the ultimate holy place heaven itself, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Why do we need to hear this? Because it teaches us that we do not have to find God. God is eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The son, our high priest, is where he is supposed to be, at work, 
representing us before the Father in heaven. But he is not there to be distant from us. The connections between the old covenant and the new covenant are there to show us that God initiated the investment in humanity. He is the one who made his dwelling place amongst us so we could draw before him in worship. He is the one who instituted a sacrificial means by which our sins might be removed. We might have no barrier coming all the way into the most holy place where he is. We might fear that we would be consumed in an instant for breaching his holiness. But we've been purified. Jesus is there in heaven in the holy place, not so that we would be further from God, but nearer than ever before. And why is he so compassionate towards us that he would love us this much? Well, it's because, aspect number two, he has appointed himself a superior priest. He didn't abolish this unique advocacy of priesthood. He perfected it by becoming ultra qualified for the position. Not only is he the eternal priest who will never grow weary and tired of interceding and be replaced, but his resurrection from death is proof that he has succeeded in bringing forth a pleasing sacrificial offering to God. Jesus only effort only ever offered one sacrifice, and he only offered it once. And as the author of the letter was penning these words, it had been, we can say, 40 years or thereabouts since Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And for that entire space of time, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice had stood No wonder he says that Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. But to add even more clarity to the ending of the old covenant and the lifetime of this audience that he's writing to, the temple in Jerusalem would be leveled and destroyed in AD 70. The Jewish people today still wail and lament the destruction of the temple. They must. It isn't there anymore. God is not receiving those sacrifices anymore. There is only one sacrifice that pleases God, the one offered by his eternal high priest. Why do we need to hear that? Because we do not mediate our own relationship with God. Jesus does. Nobody else mediates our relationship with God. Jesus does. We do not need any man or woman to bring us spiritually before God or to meet God or to please God in worship. We have God in worship. 
because we have a high priest who perfects the conscience of his worshippers. How does Jesus do that? How can we receive newness of conscience that we can be right in our standing before God, even and especially when the word of God convicts us of our sin? Well, aspect number three, briefly, Jesus' frequency of approach is better. He comes into the presence of his father not once a year, but once for all. He entered once for all into the holy places. And having entered once for all, he stayed there. He remains there, dwelling continually in the presence of God, not standing as the earthly high priest did while he performed his duties and then left, but sitting permanently at God's right hand on the very throne of heaven. Now, the Hebrews would have known, and now we, having heard from Leviticus 16, too, may know, that if Jesus has this access, he must not only have been appointed by God, but he must also be pure himself. And the question is, how is it that Jesus can take all of our sin upon himself as the sacrifice in our place and yet still be blameless? Well, the wonderful answer is that when Jesus took our sin, he took it with him to the grave and left it there. The penalty of sin is death. So if death is defeated by Jesus' resurrection, the dead coming back to life, then sin has died in the death of death itself. The death Christians die at the end of their lives is not the penalty for their sin, which has been paid and accepted. Their death takes place so that this mortal body that has tasted sin can go down to the grave and then be raised to life like that of their saviour, gloriously suitable for an eternity apart from sin and death. But none of this would be possible without Jesus' own death, the shedding of his own blood. Therefore, Christ's means of drawing near to his Father is better by far. He enters by means of his own blood, it says in verse 12. The Hebrews ought to have known that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Human death, symbolized by human blood, was the just punishment for human sin, which is cosmic treason against God Almighty. Jesus, who had no sin of his own, offered his own blood to make the better sacrifice, the final sacrifice for the sins of all God's people by faith, of both the old and new covenants. And Jesus' blood is also better, as Hebrews 
9 verse 14 adds, because it was offered voluntarily. Through the eternal spirit, he offered himself voluntarily, unlike the blood of animals. And what makes Jesus' sacrifice so vastly superior is that no animal could live the obedient life required of us so that somehow that animal's death could render unto God what we owed him. Each of us must personally own and identify. If I have robbed God of obedience by my sin, not only do I deserve death, but God still deserves obedience. And Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, not only washes away what I have done against God, it also fulfills the life that I ought to have lived for God. Which is why this offering by the high priest who has access to this most holy place brings about such vastly superior effect. The old covenant arrangement had an effect on the worshippers, those who sought to approach God through the tabernacle, its priests and its sacrifices, but it, only, it dealt only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. The effect on the worshipper was limited to the external for the, the purification of the flesh. This is like having a shower to cleanse our consciences from the knowledge of sin. However, the effect of Jesus' work on his people is better. It affects us heart and soul. Jesus' work will purify our conscience in a way that repeated animal sacrifices could not. Jesus' death put away sin. The first covenant did not. Old covenant sacrifices, by divine design, can never take away sins. Only Christ's new covenant can make perfect those who draw near. That is to cleanse the worshippers from any consciousness of sins, meaning they've been dealt with not merely put to be reckoned with at some future time, the heart of worshipper, this cleansing of the conscience, that's what's right at the heart of the argument of Hebrews. The author wants to persuade his readers with objective that their subjective sense of needing cleansing now has been dealt with decisively and for all time in a way that the old covenant could not and did not attempt. The effectiveness of Christ's work not only extends the external to the internal, but also the temporary to the eternal. He secures an eternal redemption. The first covenant with its earthly location and priesthood was good and effective for a season, as God intended. Through animal blood, it brought God's people, represented by the high priest, into his presence each year. However, the new covenant is better. Through Jesus, the superior priest, 
who cleanses us fully inside and out by means of his superior blood. We are invited to approach the very throne of God himself, not just annually, but weekly, daily, and at any moment. Brothers and sisters, you will never utter a prayer that fails to reach God because the access you have to him through Christ is wonderfully secure. The cumulative point then of Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 is clear enough but too glorious to go without explicit, explicit expression. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. It says in verse 15, Jesus did not update, renew, or renovate the first covenant. It is not the same as the old or an extension or adaptation of the old. It is new. In other words, for the first readers, this is not the religion you grew up with. This is not your parents' covenant. It is distinct and different. And they, of all people, should have been ready for this message. After all, God had promised in their scriptures through the prophet Jeremiah about this coming new covenant. Jeremiah writes the words of the Lord which say, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Jesus' single sacrifice is final. There's no need for more and no going back to before. And this is key for Hebrews. Why would you ever want to go back, even if you could? Jesus and his work and his covenant are better. If the newness and superiority of Jesus' new covenant doesn't strike us with awe and wonder, perhaps it's time to get to know the old covenant better. God designed it to help us see and savour the glory of Christ. The better we know it, the more we might stand in awe of him. Better than all else before, more than ever needed. As ages pass, our faith holds fast. In Christ, our sins defeated. Can I encourage you, if you were hearing about what Christ has done, and you know that you were burdened by sin and your conscience is heavy. Can I encourage you, please, to take hold and realise what God has done? Not to keep you at a distance, not to keep you at arm's length, not so that you might clean yourself up before coming before him. but so that putting your trust in Christ, putting your trust in the blood and the sacrifice that cleanses once and for all, 
your conscience might be pure. You might be able to come before God and be reconciled to him and experience the wonderful gift of worship and living before a holy God. And if that is you and you feel that burden and that weight in your conscience, I encourage you, please, please talk to a Christian brother or sister who can help you to know and to experience and marvel and wonder at what Christ has done and can lead you and help you in prayer, how we speak to God with that nearness and that closeness and that intimacy like never before. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your investment in humanity and your investment in the creation that you have made. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be close to you despite our rebellion against you. We thank you that it proves the goodness of your character. It proves that you are unchanging, but that you have always had a plan for the fullness of time to bring all things into reconciliation through the work of your son. We thank you for this wonderful news, the institution of a new covenant that cleanses us and washes us. We pray that our consciences might be lived pure and free so that we might serve you rightly and boldly as we should. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.